You've found the Virtually Possible podcast. Join the discussion on future of work, organizational design, and personal growth. All right, here we are again. Welcome, everyone, to the Virtually Possible podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Peter Wolf, who is an expert in developing conscious leadership, effective teams, and removing barriers for growth in organizations. In his practice, he's been focusing on working with individuals and groups to improve their communication, drive cohesion, build long-lasting satisfaction among employees and their managers. He's also a big proponent of the evolutionary action learning methodology and health enhancing workplace. We've bonded over our concerns for the future of the workplace and are here today to talk through some of them, as well as some practical aspects of coaching. Uh, Peter is a San Francisco born, but moved to Berlin a few years ago, which probably doesn't surprise anyone who's been living in Berlin as to why it wins over SF. Welcome Peter to the podcast. Hi Maria. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. We're going to be touching upon a lot of interesting aspects of personal growth, but also team growth. And I wanted us to kick this off with maybe you giving us a little bit more of a background on your story. Just before we started rolling, we talked about how you actually <laughs> moved from being an engineer to being a coach, which I find very interesting. So maybe we can give us a, a few words about how you started off and what got you into coaching. Yeah, the first 20 years of my career um, was in engineering. I had mentioned to you that it was focused on the <clears throat> transportation sector. So part of it was in city traffic engineering and then went over to advanced research and development in the automotive on the automotive side. So some of the work that we were doing in our lab is now kind of what ends up being autonomous vehicles. So I mean, like this has been developing for a long time. So. Yeah, it's always been one of my my passions is, is cars. So that's like when I was young and going to college, undergrad. That's what I that's what I focused on. And during this all this work time, you know, it's a long time. I did, of course, have experiences working in teams, working with uh, colleagues, ex experiencing those challenges, and of course, completely unaware and blind to what was going on, you know, in relationship dynamics. It's underneath of, the surface. Underneath the surface, yeah, and that's. It's great that you say it that way because in the meantime, I've also discovered what my individual purpose is, and that is to actually see and discover what's below the surface and so that we can move to a more thriving environment, a more thriving planet. And actually, this deep desire is part of what had me retire from the engineering profession and move on to the next chapter. Was there a specific moment that you discovered that this is your purpose as opposed to building vehicles? It was a process. I just reached a certain point in time when I always had, I did have an underlying desire to round out my education and experience of life beyond what I learned in engineering school. Mm -hmm. And of course, the school of life will teach anybody a lot, but that's why I took the time out. I traveled for two years around the world and I studied uh, yoga in India for almost a year. So it was really about becoming a cultural anthropologist and really understanding like how culture works by experiencing cultures in different parts of the world. And um, when I decided to go back to graduate school, then I wanted a program that would be able to really incorporate what my, my deepest desires about understanding the world and how also how I can contribute. So the program chair of my, uh, of my program is a doctor of uh, medical anthropology, which means that in addition to just studying cultures, it's also understanding how people heal 
you know, in, in ritual or, or indigenous medicine or other things like this in different cultures around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when I was living in San Francisco in the United States, then it's, we talk about this kind of thing in modern terms in, in population health management or public health. And then we have kind of our, our scientific view of that. So when I, by the time I got out of the program and I had really gotten clear on my master's thesis, it was very much focused on the workplace because that was also my background. How do we actually manage, manage a work population so that it's health enhancing, so that it's actually a place that we can grow, that we can heal? Because often, not only myself, other people mm -hmm. experience that work can be a really toxic place, and so, but it doesn't have to be. It's not even always that it's a toxic place per se, but I think because we don't have the tools to effectively manage our budgets, and I talk a lot about the energy budget uh, that each and one of us has, it just becomes a bit too much to deal with. Um, the pressure of work, the pressure of relationships, the pressure of constantly performing. And Matteo and I uh, spoke about this in, in, in the first, very first podcast, um, that we don't give ourselves that leeway to maybe sometimes not always feel like we have to be at our best. But, it, but I just feel like overall, there's not enough education on how to deal with being an adult. This is my, <laughs> this is the impression that I have. I mean, this is true about life in general. Like we were taught certain skills because those skills are needed in the marketplace, but we're not necessarily taught how to be an adult, right? Yeah. And so we have to learn that along the way. And this is where things like coaching are so really just practical, like common sense, because Coaching, if somebody feels stuck, this is a good reason for someone to seek out a coach, then in this process of coaching, you get to encounter your limiting beliefs, your limiting behaviors, and kind of unpack, unravel that. Yeah, so maybe this is a good time to touch on the differences between coaching, mentoring, therapy, self-discovery, all those kind of processes. I think... Yeah, I'd love to comment on those. And just wanted to go back then and complete a thought before doing that, which is, yeah, coaching is very helpful in kind of becoming a, a, a full adult. Mm. Uh, and that's also one of the reasons that I provide or, or offer these programs to the public, like The Art of Thriving, so which is not focused on having your life really be thriving just in the workplace, but just overall. But kind of like the fundamentals. And I know... Uh, you asked, you asked in another time, like, where does this part fit in? Five pillars of well-being, like we're talking about. Well, it's just like, this is fundamentals that we don't necessarily learn. But it's absolutely common sense. We need enough rest. So in the, in the comment that you made uh, about talking to Mateo, like, well, that means that there is a pressure to perform, but there's also a, a pressure to rest. Our, our bodies need to, to move in that cycle, to perform and then to rest so we need adequate rest we need supportive social connections when you start that journey of coaching or or therapy specifically it's because it's with another person and because it's with a professional and that when they tell you listen you also not only do you have to perform but you also have to rest you also have to sleep we somehow then feel like we finally gotten the permission to be resting to be recovering because otherwise we only go by that notion of of having to be an all-star 
Yeah, I mean, this is sorry to interrupt, but it, it's like that is the that is the norm, that is the culture. Like that's what's rewarded. So all of us want to be rewarded, and so we just fall into that line. Oh, I see what gets rewarded around here: pushing, pushing, and being the top performer. That's what gets rewarded. I'm going to do that, no matter what it takes. Yeah, but this is what I I think the that permission to rest and recover is a really good positive side effect of coaching because usually I, I would believe people go into coaching with the idea of even further enhancing their performance, right? The work performance. And don't think that more sleep is actually going to enhance your performance, but it's, again, counterintuitive because you don't do anything technically. Yeah, it's lost time. Yeah. And I've lost coaching clients who, not many, but certainly one who just could not make that shift. My time is the most important thing for me. I need to maximize it. If you can't help me, then I guess we're not going to work together. And I said, fine, because I'm, I'm so committed to sustainability and we are organisms just like everything else on this planet. So we have to find that balance. We have to find the balance of the proper, the proper nutrition, the proper amount of rest. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, but, that guy should have read some literature <laughs> on neuroplasticity, I think, because it, it would become very, very apparent to him that if he learned something while being conscious, then his brain is like soaking that in while he's sleeping. Mm-hmm. And if he's not sleeping, then he's not really learning that much. No. But kudos to him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's maybe go back to trying to figure out the differences between coaching and mentoring and yeah. therapy. What yeah, I like, I like to start with uh, therapy first. And it's a conversation that I have with anybody that's starting coaching because especially somebody that's never had coaching before, to say that it's, that it's not therapy, you know, and this is one reason why therapists are, are licensed, because they're, they're really looking for and working with a diagnosis mm-hmm. of some, something that we can say, oh, this is a pathology, this is, this is what is the problem here, let's work with this. Whereas coaching just assumes that you're, you're well, like there is no pathology that you're you're well you're a functioning human being yeah we know that's not true but (laughs) (laughs) um that uh that you have the means and the responsibility to to care for yourself and and to grow and the other thing that's really wonderful about coaching is that it starts with that assumption it's like we're, we're we're already starting with the assumption of of you're well and you're and you're complete and we're just going to work together to um, to get moving, to get unstuck, and we'll see what we discover along the way. Like what is in the way, mm-hmm. and that the way that I work in my presence-based coaching is just really just starting with the the immediate content of your life, what's happening here. And so then, there's no digging into the past. I wouldn't like say there's, would... there's no digging into the past. Um, there's there's references to the past when it's useful. I mean, the lines between therapy and coaching can be blurry because it's not like there's a, there's a clear separation of methods to help somebody have an insight. Mm-hmm. Like when looking into the past is likely to generate an insight, then it's an appropriate place to go. But it's not centered around like we need to work on this particular diagnosis or anything mm-hmm. like this. It's really more focused on, on outcomes. You really need to have a goal okay. when you're working with a coach. Therapy, I can walk into therapy and tell the therapist my problems, unravel the knotted threads inside. But it's really effective working with a coach that there's actually 
something that's worth committing to. And like working with a coach, that commitment is also part of the uh, coaching agreement. Are you committed to actually be here and do the work? Mm -hmm. And in therapy, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction between coaching and therapy, where you you do agree on the goal. Obviously, in therapy, the goal is to make you feel better if you're not feeling great. It's not a concrete goal um, in the sense of achieving something specific, whereas I guess in coaching, you can design it as being a smart goal. To yeah, it can be designed as a, as a smart goal. It can be a goal that's softer, like I want to be happier, but then it's just like further define that goal in which ways and, and also just being able to measure it in some way. Like, how would you know that you're actually ha that you're happier? Exactly. So, and then there can be some sort of goal set around that. So just making things concrete, I think it's mm -hmm. like those are the, and grounded the good qualities about coaching. And what about mentoring? Yeah, mentoring is more, the way that I explain it is like leading by example. So one of the, one of the organizations that I work with, the Global Good Fund actually, works with social entrepreneurs and that program includes a period of coaching and then a period of mentoring. Mm -hmm. So the period of coaching is working with the entrepreneur to see like what areas they really need to grow so that their leadership, you know, meets the meets the demand of what this organization is up to. So that my leadership capacity is going to be adequate to lead this organization and the vision that we have. So then it's like that's the, the path of growth. And then the mentor comes on board after and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold your hand and we're gonna and we're gonna do this together. So let me just show you and help you because I've done it before. In this program then people get primed to be ready for mentoring through coaching. In yeah, case. in this particular case, I mean it's not always that way, but in this particular case I think it's a I think it's an effective way because it gets the the entrepreneur, the, the person into this mindset of that my growth and development is is really essential here. Mm -hmm. That it's not just about somebody showing me what to do. I guess that's what parenting is. <laughs> Tell me what you to would, do. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> so we would say the best way to structure your personal growth would be therapy, then coaching, and then mentoring, and then great success. <laughs> <laughs> kind of that way. That's, I think that, that establishes a, a good enough definition of each of those mm -hmm. so that we can move forward. I think it's interesting if we would talk about your approach in, in your practice, what you do, what methods you're using, and also that initiative, Vocalize Us. Yeah, glad you asked about Vocalize. Yeah, as far as methods are concerned, when one-on-one -on -one coaching, there actually is a brand called presence-based coaching, which you know I haven't been certified in. But you know, my my path, uh, yoga and mindfulness um, and consciousness, is uh, de facto. This is kind of my my methodology. Mm -hmm. Like it's a deep, deep understanding of of okay. human beings mm -hmm. of self. Yeah. So it's it's like really an endless well to the, for my method to actually establish understanding and empathy and always hold the person in with enough care so that they are safe so developing this relationship around trust do people and, get scared when you start leading them on that path because it's it's a lot of self-discovery and it might be it can be a scary place to be good question yeah but uh 
in presence, right, I'm, I'm meeting the person exactly where they are. If somebody is talking about things on the surface, then I'm, I'm with them talking about things on the surface. So I guess it's, this is the difference between therapy and coaching that you don't necessarily dig like so super deep if it's not where they want to go. Well, one of the great methods, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to think about these as a method because it's just seemed like this is what coaching is, is asking questions. Mm-hmm. So asking open-ended questions, really, then, then it's up to the person, depending on how they respond. They'll go deep or they'll go semi-deep or they'll go mm-hmm. on the surface. Yeah, the open-ended questions allows the, the coachee to kind of feel into you know, what needs to come out. And maybe it's not deep. Maybe it's really deep. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily directing the coachee to go here because it's like I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm a coach. So the coach, I'm asking a question. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? What, what in that, you know, is challenging for you, for example? It's like in a method. It's just asking questions. I was interested also in learning about when is it, when is it a good time to find a coach and when you're on your professional journey should people who are very junior already start looking for coaches or do you need to accumulate a certain amount of work experience to have something to bring to the table when people meet you Um, Ah, i know it sounds self-serving but it's always a good time to find a coach if you're interested in achieving a dream uh, or moving towards your dream or achieving a goal. One of the more popular um, parts of coaching is career coaching. Somebody's like, oh, I want this kind of position. And and so you get a coach. And uh, so the coach is someone that assists on that process to achieve that particular goal. So it's, it's always a good time for coaching if there's something in life that uh, that you want and you want somebody to help you unpack not how to get there but like just reveal what's in the way of you getting there so that you can not be stuck and take the actions to achieve what you want mm-hmm. and then you're responsible for figuring out how to get there it becomes clearer through the conversations with the coach that you understand what what's holding you back and then that way you can also see how to go around those those issues. I would say it's it's not so much around them. It's just like it's what just, gets in the way is like oh what's oh look that's the thing that's in the way. Like I just have this um, fear of rejection. Okay, so let's put the fear of rejection out there on the table. Maybe that make that okay too. So then, what action can you take? Mm-hmm. So it's it's so much of this just relies on the the commitment and the ability for someone to take an action. Even one small step is so, is a, is monumental compared to doing nothing at all. What would you do with people who get paralyzed and cannot take an action? Well, it's important to say that it's it's not my goal as a coach for somebody to take action. That's mm-hmm. just in their own self interest, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's not my agenda. My agenda is to actually be with the person exactly where they are, right? It's not necessarily that every session there needs to be an action generated, mm-hmm. especially in the circumstance that you're talking about. If someone has is feeling paralyzed is the word that you used, mm-hmm. okay, that's, that's a lot of fear. That's therapy candidate. 
Maybe, maybe not. I guess I don't even know. no. What I mean is like even through coaching that you discover that well, on top of being coached, you might have some fears that need to be addressed. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right with someone who can um, help you unpack this if if it's let's say rooted somewhere in in your past and it's a deeply rooted fear. Yeah, I mean, and right? I encounter that too. I mean, sometimes I encounter that somebody starts with coaching. Or people alternate between them. Mm-hmm. Oh, they've had therapy, and then they do coaching. And then some people do coaching and therapy at the same time. And then, uh, so something might be opened up during coaching, where they see like, oh, I think now I want to talk to my therapist again. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's... So it kind of goes, it might go hand in hand. But like, I would say that, you know, your comment that maybe some things are better suited to therapy than coaching, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but... One short coaching session could also be enough to unblock that that fear that manifests as paralysis. Mm-hmm. You never know. It's really up to, you know, I never know what's going to happen with the other person. But I do think that coaching generally is such a great soundboarding tool. You know, you go to someone who's seen enough examples of that in a specific area, if it's a career coaching situation, and can just ask those excellent questions that immediately help you surface all of those blockers that you have. Usually we have them in our in our heads or even understanding or reframing the situation that you're in. So you can maybe look at it from a different angle and be like, well, this is not possible right now. But then let's say if I shift my mindset to you know, whatever, five degrees, Maybe this is an option and then I can overcome issues I'm facing, especially if I have a specific goal that I want to reach. But do you also find that sometimes people come to you and say, I know coaching is good. I don't know why I'm here, but I want to step into that journey. Do you help them define a goal? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Many people that I, that I have coached have never had coaching before. And so they don't know what it's all about. So then in, the, in a certain sense, that I am a teacher at the very first session to say, this is what coaching is. This is what it is. This is what it's not. And also saying that like, it's important that, that in order to start and be effective, that, <clears throat> that we establish what, a, you know, at least what an initial goal is. Mm-hmm. Right. So that there's a framework built around the, the relationship. Mm-hmm. So that we're not just hanging out, becoming friends, having nice conversations. There is something that, that is wanted. You know? I remember when we first met, and we had a conversation about what we both are doing in our professional lives. And then at the end of it, you've asked me about my two priorities. And I was like, ah, you're so sneaky in the end. Even, <laughs> even, even if we were not having a coaching session. But then I, I left that coffee shop. I was like, well, I was just coached here. <laughs> like, what happened? But it was very helpful because it set me out to fulfill the two points that I gave you. And I think one of those things was uh, the podcast. So Great. <laughs> so yeah, it came out okay. This is super helpful to have someone that holds you accountable, mm-hmm. but in a, in a very supportive way. Right. It's that kind of relationship where there's this radical compassion. From parenting and other, other pressures in life, it's like you set a goal, and when you're not on track to achieve it, 
then like what usually happens is start beating yourself up. I'm a loser. I can't do it. I, I want to do it, but I can't do it. But that's actually the kind of thinking that you can bring to a coaching conversation. And me as the coach, just encourage all of that self-talk to come out and hold it in with radical compassion because most people don't have a place where they feel safe enough to say what's actually true or even to know that there is a sabotaging voice going on in the head and it's like oh really oh everybody has that oh okay i don't have to pay attention to that all the time okay there's so many ways to to generate insight just by holding this this space of empathy i had a friend who once asked me what do i mean by this negative voice in my head he's like i don't have that and i'm like oh poor you you do <laughs> you just don't know it you just don't realize that it's there i remember you once posted this awesome test about sabotaging voices in your head like having, saboteurs, yeah. yeah saboteurs different personalities of those saboteurs i mm -hmm. think i think this is a really good test to do as well for yourself to see which one is the winning one out of the 16. Yeah, so I mean, that's also a good example of a method, right? Mm -hmm. When it's an appropriate time, you know, it's not a mandatory thing, but when it's appropriate for the person, then like, oh, why don't you do this assessment? It tells you about the different saboteurs. For some people, it's just really apparent that's what's going on. It's a way to break apart that it's not me. I can't escape myself and this way that I am to say that, oh, there's all these different parts of me and I can see myself. It's like what you were saying before. Oh, I can have a, a different perspective on this. Maybe I can actually zoom out and see myself dealing with all of these inner voices. In the past, I would give a lot more room to all of those negative voices. And there came a time in my life when I just decided that it's enough. I've given it enough room over the years that now I just can't, I can't entertain them anymore because they just take a, so much of my mental space. A good analogy is like it's you're turning off the notifications. I mean, the message wants to get through, but it's just not convenient at this moment to look at my messages. But there is something that wants to be heard. So these voices, they don't have to be judged as that these are bad things because hold it, like I said, holding this space in radical compassion, like it is a part of me and there is something that wants to be heard. So I look at my notifications at 6 p.m. So maybe at 6 p.m. I can actually open the you know open those messages and see what what is it that needs to be heard but in a place of receptivity so it wasn't convenient then but i can make a space for that for that voice then because there is actually an important message there that's but, a very good point that you cannot ignore it completely you should always make time to deal with it but maybe not let it overtake whatever you're trying to do on a daily basis really schedule that time for self-love and compassion and, um, and, I, and I would be remiss to not mention also that when those voices appear and it's not convenient to to really deal with it in that moment it is a good idea to do something that generates care and presence in that moment which could just be two breaths mm -hmm. it could be just through touch it could be through noticing some sounds in the room just a short self-care practice because this is actually what helps to start rewiring the brain so that that the, the habit of mind is that for that voice to come in and sabotage but in that moment you can also say ah this is an opportunity to build uh, another other circuitry in my brain mm -hmm. which has to do with building presence and awareness make sense yeah we do forget to breathe hmm. anytime you go to a yoga practice 
And yoga teachers are always very calm and very peaceful. And they're like, just breathe. And everyone who's um, super stressed out is like, what do you mean just breathe? It's like, I want to do other <laughs> things. It's like, what do I do? You know, one of the things in my background I didn't mention was uh, I used to be a yoga teacher. And so I love that you brought Jack in. Jack of all trades. <laughs> I, I love that you brought in the, the yoga. And, and this is very real about people not breathing mm. or really not using this innate, this innate thing that we have called breathing. I loved this part of teaching yoga. That it, I may be up here in the front of the class and I look like the teacher because I'm you know, giving instructions. Mm-hmm. But your breath is the leader of your practice. Always be and have attention on how you're breathing. Because you don't have to think about that. You're going to breathe no matter what. How can I increase my awareness? By just noticing the, my breath when my body is in this position versus this position and this position. To me, that's the essence of doing an asana practice. It's like, how do I keep that, that fullness, that awareness and that fullness, no matter how uh, I twist my body or stretch my body or something like that? Yeah, I find that yoga practice is actually much harder for me than any high-intensity type of a workout. With every asana, they do make you stay present because there's nothing else going on. It's just you and the breath, Mm -hmm. and you have to deal with yourself in literally every position, which I find very, very challenging, obviously very rewarding as well. But I think if you're willing to see, meet yourself where you are, really, it also shows you that it can be quite an intense practice mentally, not so much even physically, or although some of the asanas are insane, mm-hmm. but, but mostly this is a, very much of a mental practice, any type of yoga, really, that you do, mm-hmm. and, unless it's yoga nidra, where you just fall asleep. <laughs> I'm also a certified uh instructor in yoga nidra really oh my god i love yoga nidra though it's It's, so powerful it's crazy what it does see it's such an uh, so much fun but let's go back to coaching (laughs) (laughs) we've um we've gone on a on a bit of a tangent like you said before there's really no good or bad time to start coaching and in organizations, it's it's rather the more senior management or just senior leadership going into coaching. And even if that's the case, before they allow juniors to try coaching for themselves, when managers are being coached, what do you see are the key benefits that, that they might be getting and then how can they relay whatever they, they've learned through coaching onto their teams? Yeah, so maybe, maybe this sounds a bit too dogmatic but if the senior leadership is not doing coaching they're not growing in their capacity to understand uh, what's happening as they lead people so this is i could get other kinds of results uh, results that basically don't build trust um some people ask me can can you do coaching with the junior people and not the senior people well i mean of course it's great that the junior people are coached but um, when senior leadership is not engaged in their own process of growth, then there's a disconnect, especially when doing organizational change, because I've tried it both ways. I've tried doing the bottom-up approach, um, working, with, uh, working with people in their growth and development, 
and this and the senior leadership is like this is great my 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 staff loves it but they're not actually in their own process of growth it just it just doesn't work because at a certain point the leader comes up to a point and it's just cut off from from this whole process of of looking inward and and relating to other people i mean there's that, a, there's quite a bit of a risk of the team outgrowing you if you're not willing to grow yourself then they might get to a point where they are a bit more enlightened than, than you are and it seems like you have you as a leader have nothing to offer if you haven't been trying to learn and develop your own skills. Well certainly nothing to offer in terms of emotional intelligence, for example. And I think that's sort of like one of the one of those fundamentals that that's really important for a leader to have to be to become skillful with emotional intelligence. Like to know know themselves and to be able to recognize in others what's what's going on. In a sense, I think that this pandemic has been such a blessing, you know, quote unquote, blessing for management, really, because it brought them back to understanding or even maybe develop the understanding that emotional intelligence is, if not as important, then, then maybe even a bit more important than the IQ of, of a leader because the EQ is what helps in relating to other people like I can be the most brilliant CEO and have the best ideas that when created in the marketplace they will sell but if I want to scale my jobs <laughs> yeah if I want to scale my organization if I want to really foster innovation then it's really great that people are relating to each other and especially people with diverse backgrounds relating to each other. This is like perfect field for, for creativity and innovation. So there are, there are inherent challenges in that, but that's where coaching and team coaching can, can really be helpful. If, if you want a, an agile, if you want a nimble organization, if you want to encourage creativity in your organization, yeah, then senior leadership needs to be engaged in their own process of of growth and development so that they they actually know what it is that uh, what's needed they have their own experience of what's needed to create that but also just to build trust lead by example in this case I believe in that this we should be an organization in which we value growth and development then be the example of that I have my coach I'm in this process actually start displaying some level of empathy and vulnerability to say that yes, it's not always easy, but at the at the most basic level, walk your talk. We all know it's not easy, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. Nobody's expecting that this is going to be an, an easy journey, but they become a lot more relatable if they're also going through that process. Right. Why do you think there's still so many CEOs and so many leaders that are not trying to develop their skills? Yeah, there's probably a couple of at least. A couple of good answers to that. But, I'll take one. <laughs> um, if we're talking about motivation, actually how how you develop people within your organization is not as well understood as the normal measures of success. How many sales, how much revenue growth, which orients leadership in a, in a certain direction, very tangible direction. And especially if you're under a lot of stress to do that, then this notion of like, oh, I need to know myself better, and that will actually um, benefit not only me, but the entire organization. This is really something that is, I would say, 
it's happening a lot. You know, we think of some of the leaders in Silicon Valley that have been quite open about you know coaching and personal growth and the benefits of that. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're just trying to survive and make your first you know your first sale, then that's the focus, and it gets blinders on. Tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. And it's out of balance. So that in itself is setting the culture for the entire team. We are driven. We, we achieve our goal at all cost. That is the culture here. Fit in or not. So what does it take for someone to, to interrupt that, that train of thought, that, that habit of mind? Coaching and team development is obviously a way to kind of break out of that pattern. But it, it seems like... It needs to be a self-realized need on the highest uh, level of leadership to actually happen. We want, I mean, the relationships in an organization to be functional, mm -hmm. to be to be workable. We want to be able to build trust in all of these relationships, especially in the senior and the senior level. Um, usually, things start to break down where if the behaviors are too toxic, then then trust is broken. Certain people start avoiding that uh, this other person because. The ability to relate to each other just is, is unworkable. That's how organizations get broken, teams get broken, families get broken. It's just people are out of their capacity to know how to overcome their own fears and obstacles and start relating to the world, start relating to the other people. So would you say the most important aspect of any successful organization is trust? It's like this is what makes companies, it's what makes organizations hum is when there's trust. It's also what makes uh, businesses hum because there's trust between customers. You know? mm -hmm. So everybody is really, well, two things, trying to get their needs met uh, and have greater or lesser success at expressing those needs. But when done well, then, then there's trust. So when there's trust, then communication can happen more easily. But there are a lot of um, unspoken agreements that stop me from breaking open these unconscious habits. So if you have a CEO that um, by default, he's the, he's the authority, right? But when there's no kind of permission that, that somebody can say like, well, I disagree here for these reasons, because that would be stepping over a, a line, mm -hmm. then, then you've already diminished the amount of communication that can happen. People are just gonna be forced into their, into their corner of what's permissible, what's not permissible. What I do, in uh, working with a team as work so that on the listening, build the permission and the safety so that everybody can be heard. So to kind of break those patterns of who gets to say what and when. Maybe this is a good time. I would just mention the, the Vocalize project that I, that yeah, I also worked on. I'm just sitting here in silence because I, I think this is such a terrifying scenario to be in, in that group coaching session when you know that there's fear around speaking up and being open in communication and when a coach says well just say whatever you think makes sense or you know whatever you feel probably that initial experience is quite terrifying for people and it is a process will. yeah right like uh i wouldn't go in without already building the trust and safety to say just say whatever you want that's kind of pseudo psychological safety like we're just setting a policy we're a psychologically safe organization <laughs> But that's not grounded in reality at all. How do you actually build a psychologically safe organization or, or even a team? Mm -hmm. right? you, you have to start with some in the process, which is, first of all, acknowledging that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. That's a huge thing right there. Just like, oh, no, I don't feel safe. 
Okay. And then start developing some uh, capacities with this listening, for example. How do, how do you actually listen? Listening and feedback for me is like this is a fundamental skill that I work through and, and people and teams before we even start talking about psychological safety. Before we even start talking about just say whatever you want. Because people need to be grounded in the same reality of what it is to actually listen to somebody. Are you listening to hear or are you listening to respond? Yeah. So how, how does Vocalize fit within your practices with coaching and teams? Yeah, so in the, in the interest of building a functional team, there are these unconscious patterns, uh, unconscious behaviors about. I use the example of there's, there's somebody that, that likes to talk a lot. So um, there's somebody that's more aggressive. There's somebody that um, there's just certain roles that, that people naturally. bring into naturally. a group naturally. Yeah. But unfortunately, that means there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that might be um, sabotaging trust, maybe uh, resentment is building, a lot of different things that uh, that we don't actually acknowledge probably going on underneath the surface. Vocalize is uh, group storytelling. Mm-hmm. So throughout the ages, storytelling is how human beings connect to each other. It's bringing something pretty ancient and it's kind of encoded in our DNA that to tell stories together that um, bringing that into to this modern context um, and so the project was actually built out of a complete disaster of a, a group encounter weekend like several of us gathered together to make the world a better place how do we reclaim democracy uh, this kind of thing but then you know we basically ran into our own shadows and our own blind spots and erupted into this conflict. What happened was I started around that everybody got to say something about where they were right then. That's courageous to even propose that in yeah. a conflicted group. Well, I've been, I've, been, I've been through my own, my own process too, where you know, I had certainly gotten accustomed to feeling the fear. There is a certain amount of fear that I was experiencing, and so, like, but within that fear, it's not just my fear. There's all sorts of uncomfortable feelings going on. So, and anyway, that's how it was born. And once all the voices are heard, there's a release of energy into the room. So, it's an equalizing tool. Okay. So, how does it work? People get together, and then you ask questions. Is there a coach? Present? It's actually it's actually quite simple because, and it's and it's a tool. It's in addition to like a group coaching process. And so it's really effective when, when a group of people have already been through something together or like they just had an hour meeting or an hour and a half exercise or something like that. Mm-hmm. So then it's a way to take, take the pulse of the group and create a story. One of the questions that I often use is, so who are you right now? And mm-hmm. everybody writes a line and then these lines come together. And then that is the group story. But what's powerful about the group story is when it's read back, because then everybody hears their piece. And the story that, of what is created together is something beautiful. What I noticed from the very get-go when doing this vocalized process is that the reaction that people have when they hear the group story, it's a way that they really feel connected to everybody in the room and everybody sees and Uh, and hears themselves in the story. Mm, so people first write their own experience and then you read it out all together? Right. And that's either done like analog or digital and, and all the responses are, are assembled together and you just read it out right then. But mm-hmm. just doing it 
like as a rapid feedback like this is who we are it's not so it's a great way to build that that we connection build the connection between people this is who we are and i see myself in it what do you do with those members of the team that are not as enthusiastic about coaching well when we're talking about this group activity then i encourage that to be a part of it we're not looking for consensus we're looking for inclusion so if one person says this is stupid then include it that is the voice mm. that needs to be heard so yeah this is not a consensus building it's it's really about uh, inclusion but do you find that they change their minds once they go through the process that they see the value in being heard even if the voice that they have is not a consensus building one Yeah, I mean I I actually don't have any um clear answer to that because it it can be anything. Being a part of an exercise like that where you see who you are in the group may shift your behavior to be like, "Oh, okay, I think I can move closer. I can have I can feel more uh, trust and move closer." Or it may actually be the thing that says is like, "I don't belong here. I'm out. See ya." And I get but it doesn't matter because it's the truth. In any way, it's a learning experience. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we've touched a little bit upon the Vocalize initiative. I wanted to maybe finish off before we move to my favorite segment of the podcast, the VP Roulette. Talk oh. a little bit about health-enhancing workplace initiatives that you're also a big proponent of. How did you get interested in that line of work? Because my my interest was in organizations and work organizations and clearly you know, like for 20 years, I mean I was I was engaged in this program in graduate school. And so much of that effort had been so focused on lunchtime walks or we need just things that make people healthier, more fit, better mm-hmm. food. I mean all these things are really important. but it wasn't getting to the root cause of of the dysfunction. So how did I get into into this line of work is like I actually wanted to see how to address the root cause of of organizations that don't work well together. What And is the root cause, do you think? For me what I focused on was um quality of relationships. We just talked about storytelling. Mm. Like this this is how we how we connect. And we actually do need to connect each other. This is part of it's part of our human evolution is that we that we indeed are dependent on each other for our survival so it's already encoded into our dna and for me it's just like how do we optimize that in the workplace so that we're not hiding out that we're actually in relationship with each other so that we're activating the brain chemistry and the other hormones in our body that are that are health enhancing it seems like i just use a lot of words to describe stress in the workplace so like <laughs> stress in the workplace has been the thing that people are saying we got to eliminate stress from the workplace but yeah um doing a yoga class or going for a run is going to alleviate stress if you just also focus on like how the relationships at work can that can be health enhancing how to establish trust and safety because that's what work is it's about relationships and it's about trust i guess we already talked about that mm-hmm. that's really what we're doing so focusing on the root cause focus on building quality relationships that release the things in our bloodstream that make us feel safe, calm, relaxed. That's how I got into it. I for a very long time have been looking at interactions that I had at work or outside of work always through this other lens of what is actually happening here. You would have the conversation on the surface, the way people talk to you, the words they use, 
they might indicate there's something happening there. Sometimes it's nothing major, but a lot of times I try to always reflect on what is actually happening. It's not even the information that I'm getting as a receiver, but also what I'm sending out. I have this one friend who just always gets me really almost over the edge when I talk to him. And it's not him trying to get me into that uh, headspace, but it's definitely me reacting to something and me projecting onto him a certain way. And I mm. and it takes a lot of my mental awareness when I talk to him to not let that default setting go off. And I've noticed that every time I talk to him now, I'm like, don't go into that dark place. Just take it at face value instead of adding whatever story that I've been telling myself that conversation goes with. Right. So... Sometimes, yeah, you have to just spend a lot of time reflecting on the spot, try to understand why it's setting you off a certain a certain way. Yeah, so like in a coaching relationship, if you bring that into a coaching relationship, then you say, oh, this, this always happens when I talk to this guy. So, of course, you're right. It's not about the guy. It's mm-hmm. about there's a certain reaction. But where does, that, where does that come from? How can we work together to release that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, trust me, like every time I lash out at him, he's very surprised. He doesn't get why he's getting that treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and he's surprised and I'm surprised kind of, but then I go back and I'm like, oh, okay. Again, <laughs> it happened again. <laughs> I wonder if there's anything else that we want to cover. Is there anything you want to speak about? Yeah, I just wondered if I wanted to relate your story back to a, the, the group environment. but Which story? Your story about like, oh, there's this particular person. Mm. Uh, and every time this person is in, you know, the room or in the conversation with me, there's that. There's I want to kill him. There's that trigger, <laughs> right? But let's say if that's happening in a team, mm. and everybody has the maybe the, their own version of that. On the one-on-one coaching, of course, it's much easier to deal with those issues, kind of un- unblock or to to release mm. those things. But in a group environment, it is really going into the into the listening of the group. I do wonder though if that kind of a person is in the group environment and you get a feeling that everyone has a similar reaction to that person. Is it possible to do something about it? Especially if this person is in a position of power against the whole group. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing about psychological safety. Everybody has permission to say what's actually true. Everybody goes around the room and says, I'm, I'm scared to death of you. There needs to be an honesty. Everybody's having a similar reaction. That's that's just what's true. That's what's so. I feel like I was that person. You were <laughs> that person? I think, yeah. I, I had a lot of people tell me, like, to my face that they're scared of me. Because I felt that how I was raised in the professional environment, mm-hmm. it was just you either survive or you burn. And I didn't understand that it's not everyone's mode of functioning, I think. like it's. And what was it like to get the feedback? But that was scary for people. To an extent, I guess it's all, it's never pleasant, but it's not unpleasant because I was afraid of what they would think of me. It was that it made me upset that I hurt other people, that mm-hmm. I didn't see that not everyone appreciates the same kind of hard training to callous their mind to be able to go through hardship. And I think it only just reflected on to me not being compassionate enough or like not being empathetic enough to understand that you do have to meet people where they are and not assume that everyone 
want to go through the same kind of journey that, that I went through. Because it's not everyone's goal uh, to persevere no matter what. Some people just want to have a job. So you cannot assume that everyone wants to get to the same place that you want to get to. And I think this is what creates a good leader, one that can adjust the way they are depending on who they're dealing with. And it's not about shape-shifting and it's not about not being genuine. It's just about being able to talk to different people in a different way while still staying true to the values that you carry. Right. So that then the feedback sounds like that opens something up because like nothing would necessarily change in a positive way without the feedback. If the feedback didn't come around that, oh, that's that's really scary. And and then you went on to say, what really got me was realizing the impact of that. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, and that's without the feedback, that's not even visible. Just a habitual behavior, right? But then there comes a, an opportunity to make a choice. Do I want to grow out of that? Because if I stay with it, it just separates me from people. If I grow out of it, then not only will I not be hurting people, but I'll actually be connecting with people and being able to meet people. You know, leadership is for everyone. Leadership is not for just the, the heads of organizations. Leadership, everybody is a leader. And you or anybody else has the choice. To, am I going to committed to doing things differently? Okay. Yes. I think what I found challenging in this um, whole experience was mostly that I wasn't sure if it's possible to rewrite your story with the people that you've already impacted in that way. And it's that because, you know, as we meet people along the way, we create stories about them in our heads. And I've been always wondering to what extent you can rewrite your story in someone else's head because it's mostly dependent on the other the others yeah it's only possible if the other person is willing to do the work of rewriting for you because it's in their head so you can bring them you know new pieces of information but if they're not willing to take it you're apologizing for something or you're showing remorse they can take it as another as a new piece of information and then rewrite your story, but they might as well not be willing to do that. But the proof is in, is in the behavior, the future behavior. Yeah. Asking for forgiveness is a step mm. that, the, you know, if I've done something bad, I want to ask for forgiveness. And that's it's an invitation. If I'm asking for forgiveness from you, you can say yes or no. But at least I extend the invitation and say I'm committed to doing things differently now. But the proof is in the future behavior. I actually am engaging in my process of growth and asking continuing to ask for feedback how workable is this and if everybody's involved in that process then there can be something that opens up and empathy i accept that that's the way that you were and i also accept that that you're different now and the rewriting of the story never stops happens is yeah, happens naturally. I think also because if you really change your behavior, then whatever the the image someone had of you is not fitting anymore because of the behavior that you're exemplifying in the present, hopefully. <laughs> and the forgiveness piece is really important. Without the admission or the acknowledgement of that's actually what happened, and I'm sorry that that happened, 
then the resentment will just linger, no matter if your behavior changes to like the Dalai Lama, you know, because then there's some other story that gets written, oh, she's acting like the Dalai Lama now, but I know who she really is. But without the forgiveness, <laughs> then the resentment lingers. Yeah. I do want to switch gears as we're coming to the end of our conversation. Uh, at the end of every podcast, we have the segment called the VP Roulette, the Virtually Possible Roulette, which is 10 questions that are unrelated to anything specific. And you get to pick three numbers and then answer three random questions. So go ahead. Pick three random numbers. Yeah. I'm going to pick one, three, nine. One, three, and nine. Number one is, what does new normal mean to you? Yeah, I relate to it in terms of, of culture change. Like, it was this way, this is the new normal. And of course, that's dynamic. It's a change in the environment, which includes people and the way people are, and includes things other than people. The circumstances. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this is a profound change that we're ex experiencing as a society because it's, it's happened to everybody globally? Yeah, I guess there's something in my thinking that like the term new normal is is almost kind of binary. It was this way, mm -hmm. now it's this way. But I don't think we actually I don't think we actually know what it is that we're living in. So to call it new normal, it's it's just change. And I think that this is kind of the mindset that, that I want to help people grow out of is that we're going to get to a new stable place. If there's anything, maybe what we can hope for is people being better able to adapt and change, to really live in the, the dynamism of life, which is, you know, it's much easier if things are, if things are settled. As we, if, we need, if we reach a new plateau and this is the new normal, then like, okay, I can feel safe again. But there's just so much unknown about our future that um, a place where I feel safe is in my ability to respond, to, to dynamically respond to the moment. Yeah, and that's and I, what I encourage um, everybody to do. And I think this is why coaching is so valuable, that it teaches you how to be adaptive in any circumstances, and it gives you that confidence to be able to react and pivot without losing too much of the safety. You're not always craving that comfortable, mm -hmm. um, settled uh, environment because you're just as confident dealing with the changing waters yeah, of like life. I'm, I'm home no matter where I am. Yeah, for sure. Well, the next one, number three, is what is the best thing that came out of that new paradigm that we're living in for you? Yeah, hopefully I can be concise in this, but it is that the fact that everything slowed down, especially for during the first lockdown. No flights, there's basically no restaurants, all the patterns that we were already locked into just stopped, so slow down. Mm -hmm. was, the, was the biggest blessing mm -hmm. for me. It was like, oh, I actually get to return to myself and, and not be pulled in some kind of anxious uh, habit uh, to keep up with this, to keep up with that. And so that blessing is, it's like, wow, there's extra time and space to, to not only be with myself, but to sense into the world 
in a different way, a different way of perceiving the world when, when things slow down. I love the instant removal of the fear of missing out. Yeah. That was definitely my favorite part of the lockdown. As much as I feel for all the restaurant and bar owners and everyone who's had to make ends meet in a different way, mm-hmm. I think the pressure of always being out and about is huge and, and, and for sure it's huge in Berlin as well mm-hmm. to be you know constantly entertained. So I did enjoy getting back to self and, and spending some more time with, with yourself. Yeah, and uh, I live out in the edge of Berlin next to Grunewald, so mm. my connection to, place. Yeah, my connection to nature. I was just I fell in love. Like I fell in love with the the little things in life. Mm. Um, really became much more sensitive to my habitat. I'm not just this adult human being living in an urban area doing programmed and striving for this and that. No, I'm actually a part of this entire ecosystem here. And when I'm able to relate and sense into that, there's so much joy. Yeah. There's sunlight and trees. The best are the best things that we have. Okay. And the last question is best book that you've read this year that you want to recommend. Yeah. The, the book that I'm currently reading, I suppose is, the book that has gotten me pretty excited and it's just so appropriate for our times too. The book is called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson and she's a scholar and this is a a nonfiction book. I love nonfiction books. Um, Guilty. um, (laughs) Guilty as charged. (laughs) Yeah, she, her, her last work took I think almost 20 years. It was about the the black migration after um, after the civil rights movement in the United States. But caste is about the kind of the unspoken or the invisible caste system that divides Mm. people. I'm just into it so far and I just think it's such a profound work that helps us understand our time, understand where uh, unconscious racism comes from, how, how it just lives in the structures of life that we have. It's really, really powerful. And very, like you said, very appropriate for what's happening right now. Yeah. Well, what's been, is, actually what's been happening forever. It's been happening for like at least 400 years. This. But it's a, somebody to name it. I mean, this is the thing that we've been talking about the whole time. To actually have permission to name what's true is, is what is really needed if we want to be free. If we really are moving towards a place where we're, we have more, more freedom, more joy. The other book that I've been reading a lot this year is is my my own manuscript. Oh right, yeah, because and, you're writing a book, right? Yeah, and I think it's, it's I've finished writing it now, and now it's just a matter of getting it published. It also deals with these uh, these issues of racism as as well. So, I guess that's where my uh, my my head has been in terms of reading this year. Do you know when it's coming out? I don't know yet. I don't have a publication Sometime next date. year. Sometime next year, yes. Sometime sure. next year. Thank you so much for all the answers, uh, Peter. Before I'll let you go, can you tell everyone where they can find you online and uh, maybe give um, some context on the next retreat that you're organizing or you're part of that some people would want to join? Yeah. The Art of Thriving is the, the retreat that I'm organizing for November 28th. And um, I haven't done a retreat in a while, 
but uh, it's something that I started up again because I just want really wanted to offer something outside the work context as kind of these essentials of well-being. So that's why I call it the, the five pillars. Some of these pillars we've already talked about during the, the interview today. Uh, what are the fundamentals of, of well-being, like, like rest, like nutrition, but also social connection and having those social connections be supportive. It's experiential and it's online and offline. Um, you can find that on my Facebook page, Peter Wolf, also on Eventbrite. And my websites are peterwolf.com. That's Wolf with two Fs. We will and, link to it in the show notes. And vocalize.us. Okay. So people can find you there. They can also follow you on Twitter, uh, where you already started talking about those five pillars of well-being. So interesting resources there. Uh, we will link to everything in the show notes. So if anyone is interested in joining the retreat at the end of the month and thrive uh, with the help of Peter, uh, they can do that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's been great. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you so and much, Maria. We'll do it again. Nice. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. And until we record another one, bye.